Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 34. This time we accompany Holmes and Watson to Switzerland for a showdown with Professor Moriarty in The Adventure of the Final Problem from December 1893. And here's Paul to introduce the story that needs no introduction. Following his marriage to Mary Morstan, Dr Watson has lost touch with the routines of Baker Street and is somewhat surprised when a dishevelled and agitated Sherlock Holmes appears on his doorstep in the spring of 1891. Seeking a temporary haven and trustworthy company, it appears that Holmes has become embroiled in a perilous contest of wits with one Professor Moriarty, a mathematical genius and unlikely kingpin of London's criminal underworld. His duel with Holmes is reaching its crisis, and the great detective seeks a European retreat while the police round up the Professor's gang. He also requests Watson's company, despite the journey's inherent danger. The adventure of the final problem has probably the longest gestation period of all the Sherlock Holmes stories, the novels included, and the writing history is a little convoluted as a result. Um, But fortunately for us, as in so many cases, uh, the great Doylean scholar Richard Lancelin Green went before us, and in his book, The Uncollected Sherlock Holmes, he gave a very good summary of the story's development. Now, uh, as we know, and we've mentioned in previous podcasts, uh, Conan Doyle had long harboured a desire to kill off Sherlock Holmes. He'd originally toyed with the idea uh, while coming to the end of the adventures, and uh, he was dissuaded from doing so by his mother, um, who instead offered the uh, suggestion of a story based on a lock of hair. That story became The Copper Beaches, the last of the adventures, uh, and on completing that story in January 1892, he wrote to his mother, So now, a long farewell to Sherlock Holmes. He still lives, however, thanks to your entreaties. Uh, But Conan Doyle's respite didn't last, well, didn't even last a month because Greenhouse Smith was soon on to him to request a further 12 stories. Uh, Conan Doyle proposed an outlandish fee, £1,000, which is roughly 150000 today, and was surprised when it was accepted. But even by September 1892, he was again thinking of killing off Holmes. Uh, J.M. Barry recalled a conversation that they had at the seafront at Aldborough uh, about uh, Sherlock Holmes's imminent death, uh, Aldborough being a, a location more associated with M.R. James than with mm-hmm. Conan Doyle, and that the idea of killing off Holmes was at the forefront of uh, Conan Doyle's mind is, is further corroborated by uh, the account of Frederick Villiers, the celebrated war artist and correspondent for the graphic, who had covered, among other uh, conflicts, the, the Second Afghan War, He gave a lecture in Upper Norwood in December 1892 and uh, visited Conan Doyle to find that uh, Conan Doyle was planning Holmes's demise. It's from Villiers that we get this uh, quote that uh, Conan Doyle said, a man like that mustn't die of a pinprick or or influenza. His end must be violent and intensely dramatic. And Villiers wrote, I could see that my dear friend of many happy monthly parts was doomed. The author of his being was inexorable on this point, and I left the house with a touch of sadness in my heart. So April 1893 comes round, and Conan Doyle wrote to his mother to say, I'm in the middle of the last home story after which the gentleman vanishes, never more to reappear. I am weary of his name. But the precise method of disposing of homes Uh, was still to be decided. The solution came four months later in August 1893 when Conan Doyle and his wife Louise departed on a lecture tour and holiday in Switzerland and uh, among the party 
were the novelist uh, Silas Hocking, uh, the the supernatural story writer E.F. Benson, and the Reverend William J. Dawson. And uh, the Conan Doyles and Dawson visited uh, Myringen, the Gemi Pass, and the Reichenbach Falls, which uh, later led Dawson to describe himself as an unintentional accomplice in Holmes's death. But it was later in the same holiday that the method of killing Holmes really came into sharp focus. And that was when Conan Doyle visited the Findalen Glacier with Hocking and with Benson. And Benson brought up the subject of Holmes and together they debated uh, the detective's fate. Uh, it was Hocking who apparently suggested that uh, Holmes could come to Switzerland and fall down a crevasse, which he said would save Conan Doyle on funeral expenses. And we don't really know when the Conan Doyle completed the final problem, but it was most likely uh, immediately on his return to England, because at the end of August 1893, he wrote to his publisher to ask that the second series of stories be called The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, and they include the final problem. Uh, and that was the same letter in which Conan Doyle uh, asked that the cardboard box be expunged from the memoirs, which we might talk about another time. Now, the story first appeared in The Strand in the UK in December 1893, although many American readers might have already caught up with the story. Uh, unlike the rest of the memoirs, McClure's had the rights to Final Problem, and uh, the story was syndicated in US newspapers starting around the 26th of November. Uh, for his part, Conan Doyle laconically recorded the event in his notebook with two simple words in December 1893, killed Holmes. Yeah, so, so the, there are a number of, of very interesting points come from, from the, this discussion. Mm. Um, I mean, you, you've mentioned um, Doyle talking about the death of Holmes to, to, to J.M. Barry and, and Villiers. And the, these, these are men who are very much in his own set. But when you come to the um, the August trip to Switzerland, it's a bit of a strange setup um, because it's it's a, it's a kind of semi-religious convention. Mm. Um, I mean, W. J. Dawson or the Reverend W. J. Dawson was was the editor of the Young Man, um, which was was a a magazine that had mix of of adventure stories, but also improving articles. Mm. Um, and, and he had actually asked Doyle to write uh, an, an, an improving article, as it were, on, on his literary heroes. Mm. And you've also got Silas Hocking is another a, a, a Cornish writer of essentially morality tales. Yes, yeah. A very, very popular writer, all but forgotten now, but in his time, you know, hugely popular. Um, so you, you've got the, this kind of um, semi-religious group, and and... It's it's not entirely clear why Doyle was invited along mm. um, on on this this trip. Uh, he was there to lecture. He gave his his favourite lecture on George Meredith, but perhaps they saw Doyle through his influence with Sherlock Holmes as as an influencer of people generally and and perhaps young people in particular, mm. Mm. Um, because Holmes, although he is an ambiguous character, there's a, there's a real streak of morality. Yes, absolutely. Runs runs yeah. right through him. So um, people like Hocking and Dawson will see Holmes as as a a, a character who's in the right. Yeah. Um, so perhaps this is why um, why why Doyle's invited along. And the other one who you mentioned there, E. F. Benson, Edward Frederick Benson, mm -hmm. was the son of um, Edward White Benson, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, yeah. who was also along on this trip with with his wife, uh, which is why E. F. was or Fred, uh, he was known as. Yeah. Um, one of the three um, Benson brothers, uh, all of whom became famous writers, A.C. Arthur Christopher Benson, who actually wrote the words later on for Land of Hope and Glory. Yes, yes. There was the youngest brother, Robert Hugh Benson, R.H. Benson, who, who famously converted to Catholicism, became a Catholic priest and was a great um, apologist for the Catholic faith. Um, Edward Frederick, uh, Fred, was, was, was rather lighter. Yes. In his literary touch. Um, this is in August 1893, this meeting. He'd actually become a literary sensation in May 1893 uh, with the publication of his first novel, Dodo, which mm. was um, a, a light uh, society humorous novel. Um, and and um, Benson was a, was a great fan of Oscar Wilde and saw the success Wilde was having with this sort of material. 
Um, and and so he wrote this this novel Dodo, which was just a massive success because it it parodied lots of famous people in London society. Mm. Um, and there was the fun. Of, of, of playing the game of who's who. Yes. Um, and there was scandal came out of this as well. And Fred got himself into some hot water. <laughs> um, but as you mentioned, his, his other famous writing, uh, uh, besides these, these kind of um, camp society novels, uh, was his, his supernatural writing. Mm. And he could write some very, very dark ghost and horror stories. Um, and, and so 1893 is, is, is a major year for Benson. Uh, because you've got the publication of Dodo in May. He's along on this trip in August. He's there at mm. the, the kind of mm. the decision-making process about the death of Sherlock Holmes. And then later the same year, on the 28th of October, he is present at the 601st meeting of the Chit Chat Society <laughs> in, at Cambridge University, um, at which M.R. James, a good friend of, of Benson's, reads out two of his to become very famous ghost stories, Canon Albrecht's Scrapbook and Lost Hearts. Mm. So, so Benson mm. is, is by chance there at present the time. at two, two great literary events. Yeah, and it seems that Benson and Hocking and uh, uh, Barry and the like were all quite surprised to hear that Conan Doyle was intent on killing off this great literary creation that had been uh, such a part of his um, financial and critical uh, success. And the public reaction to uh, the death of Sherlock Holmes was was quite pronounced. I mean, we often talk about how uh, shocked everybody was, although, uh, you know, something that we often overlook is the fact that his death had been quite well trailed. Um, you know, it, on the 30th of September, the Pall Mall Gazette had broken the news that Sherlock Holmes was going to die uh, under its literary notes column. Uh, it wrote, uh, we're in a position to announce the approaching decease of Mr. Sherlock Holmes and are not by any means sorry to do so. Dr. Conan Doyle does not intend to write any more detective stories and we are glad to hear it. He can do far better work. Uh, and Matthias Bostrom has um, quite rightly, I think, spotted that, that the source of that story is almost certainly Conan Doyle himself, since the uh, sentiments uh, exactly mirror his own. Uh, but also the Strand sister publication, Titbits, uh, it trailed the death of Sherlock Holmes, um, saying that the Strand Christmas edition would feature a story on that topic. Um, and in fact, once the uh, uh, the final problem had come out, Tidbits ran a uh, memorial prize for Sherlock Holmes in January 1894. But it's definitely the case, even though you know some people will have picked up on on the impending demise, um, there was a zeitgeist moment. Um, or a, a sort of water cooler moment, as we might call it now, where everybody is hearing the news at the same time. And Conan Doyle himself, in in Memories and Adventures, admittedly writing from thirty years uh, thirty years on, said, uh, "I was amazed at the concern expressed by the public. Uh, they say that a man is never properly appreciated until he is dead, and the general protest against my summary execution of Holmes taught me how many and how numerous were his friends." You brute was the beginning of the letter of remonstrance which one lady sent me, and I expect she spoke for others besides herself. I heard of many who wept. And there's a whole mythology has now grown up around the release of the final problem. Um, and it's very difficult to really get to the bottom of whether or not there's any truth here. You know, it's claimed that the royal family were distraught. There were claims that the Strand magazine had lost 20,000 subscribers overnight. Uh, and and probably the most uh, notable is the is the claim that uh, clerks in the city of London wore black armbands, which you know I think many people have now uh, debunked, or at least uh, nobody has yet found any evidence uh, to support it. And I think uh, I think it was Phil Burgum who who no noted that uh, the earliest reference to the armbands comes in John Dixon Carr's biography of mm. Conan Doyle which means it's almost certainly an invention of Adrian's mm -hmm. um, put in. There's also this, this air that you, you get reading Conan Doyle's comments about this. Is, is, there's a, there is a great degree of disingenuousness going on here. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised at the public response. <laughs> he won't have been. I mean, he, he used his mother as, as a kind of barometer. And she's constantly, you can't kill him, you can't kill him, yeah, you mustn't, yeah, yeah. you can't. So he knows this. He, he gets this from, from 
people like Barry and Villiers, no doubt Benson and Hawking mm. and Dawson, they'll all have said, what, what, what do you think you're doing here? Uh, you've, you've got a nest egg here. You, you, you've, you've, got a carry, you've got what most authors would kill for, mm. which is, is, is this hugely successful character that the public absolutely love. Um, so there's, there's, there's yeah, definitely this sense with Doyle of, of, of disingenuousness and bloody-mindedness yes. with, with what he's doing. Uh, and that really hits at the heart of one of the big questions about the final problem, which is, you know, did Conan Doyle ever really intend to kill off Sherlock Holmes for good? I mean, was this intended to be his his final end? Because, I mean, you know, Conan Doyle claimed as such, but, you know, famously, we, we don't have a body and no, nobody mm. is discovered in this. And even at the time, some of the newspaper reviewers were were pointing out that, uh, you know, the Lloyd's Weekly, 17th of December, 1893, time will show whether the famous detective is really lost after all. And uh, Chicago Tribune, same day, saying um, he's probably not really dead, but in hiding and will mm. come forth in some future story as brilliant and full of vitality as ever. Um, so you know, it's uh, even even contemporaries were saying, "Is this is this really the case?" Yeah, I mean, if if he'd if he'd really intended to kill him off, there would have been absolutely no uncertainty. Watson would have seen the corpse. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and he'd he'd have you know certified death or whatever. The, Doyle is very much hedging his bets here. Yeah, he 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 knows that if if he should need money in future, here's the obvious way to raise it very quickly is mm. is to. To, to bring back homes um and it, it's it's very pertinent in in this discussion when he does bring homes back for the first time in the hound of the baskervilles dipping his toe in the water yes yes um, exactly. setting it before the reichenbach falls mm. but there's no reason why he couldn't have set a whole series before the reichenbach if he wanted Absolutely. to bring it back um and there's also right at the beginning of the the final problem when holmes goes to watson's home hmm He's front of air guns. Yes. We get no mention of, of Colonel Moran. No. But already the air gun is there. Yes. Had Doyle, in his own mind, been preparing the empty house even at this stage? Yeah, and I think that this might be a bit of a stretch, but I'll go for it anyway, which is that, <laughs> you know, that famous final line about uh, the best and wisest man I've ever known. Um, you know, lots of people have commented that this is a paraphrasing of a line from Plato's dialogues from Phaedo, um, which is on the on the death of Socrates, Socrates having been sentenced to death and then uh, ultimately carrying it out by, uh, uh, as was the Athenian way in uh, uh, drinking hemlock. But Plato's comment on, on Socrates was that uh, such was the end of our friend who was, as we may say, of all those of his time whom we have ever known, the best and wisest and most righteous man. And the significance of it is that Plato's discussion of um, Socrates' demise is really all about immortality and reincarnation of the soul. And uh, I do wonder if there's something going on unconsciously here about uh, about the, uh, the fact that at some point this character... Uh, could come back. I mean, we know we know Conan Doyle was interested in Plato. We know he'd read about uh, Plato's immortality of the soul because it comes up in the Captain of the Polestar, mm. uh, apart from anything else. So you know, maybe there's a little unconscious clue that you know somewhere in the back of Conan Doyle's mind, he's think he's he's thinking, I'm going to keep this door open. It's it's probably good to put the final problem within Conan Doyle's literary context. Mm. At this this time, his his so called better things, yes, um, because there's 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 a lot of things at this time he's producing. We talked about um, earlier things like Raffles Hall. Uh, he's just done the Great Shadow, um, which has its 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 moments. It's not a great work, no. Um, wonderful description of the Battle of Waterloo, but it's it's a very varied work in terms of, of its, its its quality. Now, he, he might have argued, well, perhaps this work might have been better if I wasn't getting distracted by yes. writing Sherlock Holmes. And this, this might be another reason why he wants Holmes out of the way, so that he can 
then concentrate fully on 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 you know, by better things i always presume he means his his historical fiction his kind of idea of wanting to be almost another walter scott yes um yeah. and he just sees these frivolous detective stories um or as he sees them frivolous detective stories they are of course a lot more than that yes um as as distracting him from from that yeah i yeah. no doubt is the sort of argument he would have used um when his mother was, was yes. trying to persuade him you know don't don't kill homes off don't don't kill the the, the goose that lays the golden eggs yeah i think probably the most tangible example of this you know often quoted um, phrase from Conan Doyle that uh, Holmes takes my mind from better things mm. uh, is is the refugees because he was writing the Fu- refugees at the beginning of 1892 right at the point where you know he he's put to bed the adventures of Sherlock Holmes and he gets this offer from Greenhouse Smith um, which turns his head the money turns mm. his head and he accepts it um, and we know from you know the episode we did on refugees that the the writing of that story was problematic it took him a long time and at the end of the day he wasn't very happy with the result mm-hmm. so I, I think that's probably the 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 only sort of real tangible example of how Holmes did actually impact on his his writing process because he he writes plenty plenty of other good things around this time he writes lot 249 Jelen's mm-hmm. Voyage as you say I mean I think he's really thinking back to Micah Clark in 89 or White Company in 91 I'm thinking, you know, this is really where my heart and my 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 future lies. Mm. And as as well as the um, the literary context uh, this time, there's also an awful lot going on um, in in his personal life uh, mm. that, that, that that's distracting him or, or involving him in in other areas. Uh, um, late 1893, he he joins, for instance, the Society for Psychical Research. Mm. So showing his his interest in in matters occult and spiritualist, um, and not only very strong but but growing. Yes. Um, so that is 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 something he he is going to develop. Um, but then at, at an even more personal level, um, October eighteen ninety three uh, is the death of his father. Yes. Who has has, has been in a number of of different institutions. Um, over a number of years for for his alcoholism and and later epilepsy, mm. uh, and this has has been in the background of of, of Doyle's mind an, an awful lot, and it it's crept out in his writing on a number of occasions. Uh, the, the the reference, for instance, in the Sign of the Four to Watson's alcoholic brother. Mm. Um, same year as the Sign of the Four, you got the Surgeon of Gaster Fell, mm. which is a, is a, a definite reference. Yes. Uh, literary reference to his father. Yes. Um, 1891, a sordid affair. There's no doubt about that being uh, um, shadowed discussion of, of, of the life his parents had led in Edinburgh mm. and mm. The, 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 the problems his mother had experienced um, having to, to look after uh, an alcoholic husband and bring up a young family. So th- this is very much in the background for Doyle a lot of the time. And then suddenly his, his father's not going to be there anymore. Yes. And you're then going to get a, a, a period of reflection. Yes. Will, will come later. But all these things are happening at once. Uh, and then he has another another major source of family worry also comes up in 1893. Yeah, of course. And that's the uh, diagnosis of uh, uh, Louise with um, tuberculosis. And and this is, a really, this is one of the really interesting little details in... The final problem I've never really got to the bottom of in that, you know, various sources attribute Louise's diagnosis with tuberculosis uh, being shortly after the return from Switzerland. So that would be end of uh, August 1893. Um, Some people say sometime it was uh, shortly after uh, Charles Doyle's death in October. Uh, But either way, they're putting it pretty much around the time that the final problem is finished um, and, and sent to the sent to the publishers or or thereafter you then have that interesting bit within the final problem itself where moriarty's ruse to separate watson from holmes is to put in watson's way uh, an appeal for help from an english lady quotes in the last stage of consumption it appeared that within a few very few minutes of our leaving an english lady had arrived who was in the last stage of consumption she had wintered at davosplatz and was journeying now to join her friends at Lucerne, 
when a sudden hemorrhage had overtaken her, it was thought that she could hardly live a few hours, but it would be a great consolation to her to see an English doctor, and if I would only return. And this is really quite chilling, because um, if Conan, did Conan Doyle know that Louise had tuberculosis? Uh, in which case, why is this detail in the story? It seems incredibly insensitive, uh, if it was. Or is it the case that he unconsciously knew that she had tuberculosis uh, or, or sensed it, uh, and and this was being this was coming through in his writing? Um, I mean, he he has been criticised by various biographers for not spotting her condition. Because obviously, you know, he went, to, he travelled to Vienna to look at the one of the cures, and he was familiar with the the disease. But uh, it's always been a a particularly tragic detail. Although, of course, there is the possibility that you know, since Davos Platz was the location where um, English consumptives went to to recover, it may just be that he's picking up on on what was happening around him. But either way, I think it's a uh, um, an interesting little detail in, in the story mm. and one that mm. is still quite perplexing to this day. Mm. Mm. Now, one of the problems Doyle had, having decided to kill off Sherlock Holmes, was, of course, how to do it mm. and, and what would be the method. And uh, as he he mentioned in the uh, the, the, the comment you, you referenced earlier, Mark, it, it, has to be, it has to be dramatic. It's got, yes. to, be, it's got to be big. He, he, he can't be... You know, killed off by a, a Jeffro Rucastle or, or some, somebody like that, or, or you know, get run over by a hansom cab. Uh, it, it's it's got to be more dramatic, and 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 there's there has got to be something behind it. Yeah. Um, and so he came up with the the character of Professor Moriarty. Hmm. Now, where do we think he came up with this character? Yeah. So this is. This is really interesting, isn't it? In that there are uh, there are quite a few suggestions for it, but the best evidence really comes from Gray Chandler Briggs, who was one of the early Sherlockian notables who had been in correspondence with Conan Doyle, and uh, through his correspondence had established that Conan Doyle had shaped this great character of Moriarty on uh, the villain Adam Worth, who we actually mentioned before in the episode on the resident patient, but an American mm. criminal probably most notable for the theft of Gainsborough's portrait of uh, Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, which he, he kept for 25 years, and uh, uh, but also had tunnelled into a bank, um, which may have inspired the Red-Headed League. Uh, and there is a, a very good book on Adam Worth from uh, uh, Ben McIntyre called The Napoleon of Crime, The Life and Times of Adam Worth, Master Thief, which came out in the late 90s. But there are other suggestions, uh, including from contemporaries. Uh, there's one in the, the Palmar Gazette on the 18th of December, 1893, where a correspondent suggested that Moriarty uh, may resemble uh, another forgotten villain, uh, Ferragou from uh, Honoré de Balzac's uh, Histoire des Tres, in which uh, Ferragou is the head of a, a secret order called the Deverin, the Thirteen, um, which has uh, got lots of... Uh, sort of connotations of secret societies and from the Napoleonic era. So you can Im- imagine how that might have appealed to um, Conan Doyle. But of course, Conan Doyle was not a great fan of uh, of uh, Balzac. He, uh, he actually wrote in Through the Magic Door that uh, um, uh, there is Balzac, for example, who with his hundred odd volumes, I am told that some of them are masterpieces and the rest potboilers, but that no one has agreed which is which source. <laughs> I suspect it probably wasn't that source of inspiration. I mean, the, the other source that often comes up is the fact that um, Moriarty is an Irish name as well. Yeah, the, 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 the Irishness of his name is, is possibly suggestive um, because we, we have had a, a, a period of, of Fenian activity in London th- throughout the 1870s and 1880s. Um, <clears throat> so the, there is the, the, this possibility of connection that, that, that in his mind, um, Doyle is, is connecting these sort of secret societies. And, and mm. Moriarty's own organisation is essentially a freelance organisation who will yes. help out anyone who, who's, who's up to bad things. Um, but but to, to sort of counter that um, is, is the, 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 the suggestion that's been made a number of times 
um, that, that um, from Doyle's school days at Stonyhurst, uh, there were two brothers Moriarty um, yes. that, that he knew, and one of whom, James, was was very talented at mathematics. Mm. So that may be the source, and and simply the the, the, the Irishness being connected to um, Fenian activity or secret societies might just be a, a, a kind of latter day way of reading this. Mm. The other source, of course, is um, Major Drayson as well. Um, mm. Himself a mathematician and uh, commenting on the, the the dynamics of an asteroid as such. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, I think I think we're probably in agreement then, though, that the out of all of those things, worth is probably the most the most likely, the likeliest. Yeah, and and mm. there is an interesting connection there back to that old Duchess of Devonshire portrait there, in that um, when Granada came to adapt the final problem, uh, they they have uh, Moriarty steal a portrait. In uh, uh, at the beginning of uh, uh, of the episode, and also they 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 put uh, Moriarty as the agent uh, behind uh, the Red Headed League as well. But thinking more broadly on on Moriarty, the, the the thing that's very obvious from I think the way he's presented in the final problem is that he is just conceived as a uh, a direct opposite of Sherlock Holmes to the extent where his organization and the functions it fulfills are essentially for the criminal fraternity what Sherlock Holmes and his consulting practice does for good honest folk seeking solutions to their problems and um, the thing I'm always struck by with the final problem is that we only really have the measure of Moriarty from what Sherlock Holmes says Um, Mm. we don't actually see him at work as we do in the Granada series in the mm. Red-Headed League and at the beginning of the final problem, we actually, uh, we only have Holmes's account for it. And even the confrontation in Baker Street is recounted to Watson by Sherlock Holmes. So you get mm. these layers of ambiguity around the character of, of Professor Moriarty. And, you know, there are lots of myths, again, that are built up around, uh, around Moriarty. My favourite being that he is a professor. I mean, we regularly call him Professor Moriarty, but Sherlock Holmes describes him very specifically as ex-Professor Moriarty of mathematical celebrity. And there's that wonderful moment where he, in the confrontation, where he describes him as Mr. Moriarty. Um, you know, Brett particularly brings out that in his performance, where he's uh, Mr. Moriarty. He's going to underscore the Mr. bit just to make sure that Moriarty doesn't get away with any more credit than he deserves. Um, so Moriarty is very much uh, a sort of MacGuffin. He's he's a, a tool designed to do a job, which is ultimately to polish off Sherlock Holmes. Um, and um, and we only have really Holmes's Holmes's word for it. And this creates this interesting opportunity that Moriarty may not be uh, what he seems. Um, probably the person who's best explored this is Nicholas Meyer in the Seven Percent Solution, which. Moriarty turns out to be uh, the the Holmes boys' uh, tutor, mathematics tutor, uh, and the whole instance around final problem wrapped up with Sherlock Holmes' drug addiction. Um, so you know, the, the, it's one of the nice things about the final problem is that we don't really get to see who he is in, in this. I mean, obviously he comes back in the Valley of Fear. We get more of a sense of um, Moriarty's uh, uh, capabilities in the, in the Valley of Fear, but everything in the final problem is 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 really reported. Well, you you only get um, two possible glimpses that Watson has of of is essentially a tall, well dressed Englishman. Is yeah. is is briefly at at the station, um, and and then briefly again uh, when Watson's on his way back to uh, Myringen yes and he sees uh, a, 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 a man in black wandering up towards the the Reichenbach Falls who may be Moriarty <laughs> yes. and somewhat brilliantly mm-hmm. doesn't 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 question where, who, no. who this person is but there you go <laughs> and and to, to come back to your point there Mark um about him not being a professor anymore mm. um there's a point specifically made that that, that that after his dismissal from his professorial chair, um, one of the ways he, he makes his legitimate living um, is as a, a, a mathematics tutor yes. um, to to candidates for the army, a, a, 
a crammer, as they were called, mm. uh, who would be brought in to help um, the young men who, who are having problems with their exams or have failed their exams. Yeah. Um, and this was particularly uh, for places like Woolwich and, and um, the, the, the cause like the, the artillery and the engineers. Mm. Um, and um, Conan Doyle's own brother, Innes, um, was actually uh, trying to get into the army um, in the the late 1880s, early 1890s, um, and had failed his initial exam, mm. and um, had to. He, he moved back to Portsmouth um, uh, to to go to the grammar school there and to be crammed. Yes. Um, for his exams, um, and and interesting, his mathematics tutor there was one Alfred Wood. Uh, who was who was a cricketing friend of Conan Doyle's and would later also become his secretary. So Indeed. is is Moriarty a, a kind of a, a fun in joke at Wood's expense? Yeah, good point. Uh, to, to a certain extent, um, but certainly the, uh, the 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 crammer element of of Moriarty's job must be kind of a little jokey reference <laughs> to Innes and his problems. Yeah. Uh, he did pass in the end and and did uh, did go to Woolwich and um, graduate into the artillery. Yeah, and whether he was a, a sort of in-joke or not, the one thing that you can definitely say about Moriarty is that you know, he is he is a brilliant and long-lasting innovation in popular literature, really. I mean, he is the archetypal arch-nemesis supervillain in the way that um, we hadn't really had before. Uh, and it's probably one of um, Conan Doyle's three great gifts to popular literature, mm. uh, is that, you know, the first is that he he modernizes updates and codifies the 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 modern detective story the second is that he creates um serial characters um and and that whole popular popular um popular serial form and the third is that he he in, he effectively invents the supervillain yeah it, it's it's and and almost accidentally yeah because the thing about Moriarty is that he is literally this kind of shadow character hmm. um, because he's created for a purpose. He doesn't, yeah, he doesn't develop organically, as it were. He, he he is created for the purpose of 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 getting rid of Sherlock Holmes in the most dramatic sense, but also by somebody who is Holmes as equal or can be seen as Holmes as equal. Hmm. So he has to be this this kind of. Double. I mean, this is this is the first thing that 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 um, Conan Doyle really, really ties into um, one of the great uh, sort of figures of 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 nineteenth century fiction with this idea of the double or the, uh, the the doppelganger. Yes, and he he is Holmes if Holmes had become a criminal. Essentially, I mean, even physically, they're both lean, gaunt, ascetic types. So you know they're they're, they're similar physically, um, and and he is you know, it's this this kind of zeitgeist thing is is going on. You've got you've got eighteen eighty six um, Robert Louis Stevenson doing um, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Mm. <laughs> um, it's it's a very Scottish thing as well because earlier in eighteen twenty four James Hogg produces this this kind of um, odd gothic thriller, The Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. In which a, a Puritan fanatic, um, Robert Ringham, is pursued by by a doppelganger called Gil Martin, who might be the devil. Mm. Um, and, and again, later in mid-century, you've got William Wilson by Edgar Allan Poe, another story yeah. of a, a man haunted by his double. So Doyle is really tapping into this with 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 the character of Moriarty and making a real point um about his his um suitability to to destroy homes mm. um but then there's also the um the, the the elements you've mentioned earlier with 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 literary uh, background you've got Ferragou might be an influence and more particularly adam worth yes uh, and and doyle ties this all together brilliantly um one of his great skills uh, as a writer was always as, as a synthesist yes and this is this is what he does with with um with with this character and 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 creates this this sinister other version of 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 of, of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, and and this goes on to you know as much as Sherlock Holmes is a huge inspiration for generations to come. Moriarty is in his own way, um, you know, just as 
just as uh, important. Um, you know, we we even use the phrase you know, a Moriarty to describe mm. somebody's nemesis. I mean, it's, mm. it's seeped into popular culture almost as much as, as Sherlock Holmes and, and Dr. Watson. Mm. And th- this happened quite early as well. Um, once the final problem is out there, and other writers see this and, oh, this this is a good idea, yeah. um, to have, have this huge secret sinister organizations headed by an even more sinister individual. Um, and, and probably the first to really successfully exploit this was the Australian writer Guy Boothby. Yes. Who had yeah. the, the character Dr. Nicola. And again, note the name, Nicola. It, 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 like Moriarty, it ends with, with, with a vowel sound. Yes. Yeah. Which is always this, this, this kind of sinister. You, you earlier had Wilkie Collins with Count Fosco. Yes. And obviously Count Dracula comes mm. later. It's this, this kind of vowel sound. It's very, it's, it's not Anglo-Saxon. It's Orient, isn't it, really? It's given, yeah, it's given this, this, this sinister feel. Um, and and Nicola uh, first appeared in um, A Bid for Fortune in 1895 and then stars in four sequels. Yeah. A uh, hugely successful character and, and shown the, 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 the success of this, this sort of character ideal. Um, and then later on... <clears throat> 1913, where I perhaps get one of the most famous, which is the appearance of Dr. Fu Manchu. <laughs> yes. The, 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 the evil Chinese genius invented by Saxaroma. Um, and it, it, it's telling, actually, if you go to the first um, Fu Manchu novel, The Mystery of Dr. Fu Manchu, the opening is hugely similar to The Final Problem, uh, where, where the narrator of these stories is, is Dr. Petrie, who yes. is very much another version of, of, <laughs> of Dr. Watson. Um, but he, he, the, the, the Holmes character is, is Nayland Smith, Commissioner Nayland <laughs> Smith of, of the, the Burmese Imperial Police. Um, Played by Douglas Wilmer. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, yes. And he, he suddenly appears in, in, in Petrie's apartment from nowhere. Um, and he said, Petrie says, I was too surprised to speak. No doubt you will think me mad, Nayland Smith continued, and dimly I could see him at the window peering out into the road. But before you are many hours older, you will know that I have a good reason to be cautious. Ah, nothing suspicious. Perhaps I am first this time. And stepping back to the writing table, he relighted the lamp. It's, it's, <laughs> it, you know, it almost the, the, the final problem it opening, re- mm. rewritten. Um, and again, the, 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 the character takes off so, so well. There, there are another 12 <laughs> Fu Manchu novels. Um, and they are, they're in a, a class of their own in many ways because they, you know, they, they, there's an overtly racist overtone. <laughs> yes. To them. Um, so they're, 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 you know, they're, they're gearing at a similar but different market to, to the Sherlock Holmes stories. But it just shows that, that, um, Conan Doyle had really, really started something with Moriarty. Mm. And with Fu Manchu uh, and Moriarty, the next, I suppose the next one is going to be Blofeld and um, Oh, absolutely. And, and Bond. And, and you know, Fleming was, was a definite fan of, of the Sherlock Holmes stories. Um, and again, took took the lessons of 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 Moriarty, and and what what Fleming did differently was the one thing that that Doyle is really vague about uh, is the organisation yes. that Moriarty runs. It's got no name. It's it's just this 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 freelance organisation for, for for crime and chaos essentially. Mm. Um, and and what Fleming does is he gives his organisations names. The first is 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 Russian run Smush Smiert Spionum Death to Spies. <laughs> uh, and then later he comes on with the um, the more the more famous um, organisation. Spectre, which stands for the Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion, and interestingly, their their badge is 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 a, an octopus. Ah, you know, the, the many tentacles, and this this Nayland Smith uses the same um, metaphor for Fu Manchu. His tentacles are everywhere, and if you think back to the final problem, Moriarty is similarly seen as eight limbed. There's a mm. spider at the centre of his web, yes. radiating his his evil along the web. Yes, and and in, there's another parallel, I suppose, with the Bond stories in that Fleming himself wanted to to finish off Bond and and actually made several attempts. 
Yeah, so the, the, the first one he tried um, was in From Russia With Love, mm. published in 1957, uh, where at the end of the novel, Bond is apparently killed by a poisoned knife in the boot of, of the Smirsh assassin, Rosa Klebb. Rosa Klebb, yeah. And there is a sense that this was a real attempt by Fleming to, to rid himself of a character he was already fed up of mm. and just bored. Um, he was, he had that kind of mind Fleming where he, he was easily bored by things, even though, again, it was bringing in money and helping his comfortable lifestyle. Hmm. Um, but, but you also sense that, that like Doyle, he probably wanted to be known for writing more serious things. He was a, 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 a journalist in his, his day job. Um, and he, his brother, Peter Fleming was, was, a very renowned uh, and respected travel writer. Yeah, uh, and Ian was 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 looked up to Peter in many ways and wanted to be like Peter. Um, and the 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 only two non Bond books that, that Fleming wrote were this sort of of, of, of genre, the the Diamond Smugglers and Thrilling Cities. Yes, but people wanted Bond. Yeah, yeah, mm. and you, you you see that travel writing appear in in the bond books as well i mean they're, they're very much sort of travelogues in their in their own way it's it's, it's aspirational writing yes. um yeah. which again is very different from what what doyle was doing uh, doyle was in many ways providing a, a kind of a comfortable idea that, that there's chaos in the world but there is this man who can bring order out of chaos and make sense out of chaos yes yeah uh, was it in the Bond books? Bond frequently just adds to the chaos. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. That's true. So, in many ways, the the final problem is uh, is an enormous influence on popular culture in uh, the twentieth century. But it's um it's quite an unconventional Sherlock Holmes story. I mean, this is a Sherlock Holmes story where ultimately there isn't a case, there isn't a client. Um, I mean, the closest we get to a case and a client is actually to Sherlock Holmes and his own the peril he himself is in. Um, and that has often aroused sort of um, quite mixed reactions to this as a, a as a Sherlock Holmes story. Uh, so, so you know, what's your take on it, Paul? I I really like it. Um, I do think it, it's it's a really great, almost self-contained tale, hmm. um, little mini adventure story. Yes, it's not a detective story, as I think so many many people have pointed out, because. All the detection that Holmes is doing in, in, in investigating Moriarty and his gang, is it's all done off stage. You've got to take Holmes, you've really got to take Holmes's word for an awful lot in this, as, as you've pointed out. You know, it, it, it's the, the, the whole reliable, unreliable narrator thing Yeah. with this one. It, it's Watson is simply reporting what Holmes is telling him. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's a very different story. To, to, to many of the others mm. um, but I, I just I like the pace I, I, I like the idea I, I, I do love this idea of this this mysterious organization and, and although as I said Moriarty is, is created just for this 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 one purpose it is quite astonishing how much you can get out of this character mm. Um, and and it is this 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 almost accidental development within the, the this this whole genre. And I, I think it's 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 an endlessly fascinating story. Mm. Um, and and again, to come back. I I, I absolutely adore the uh, the Granada adaptation because it does it 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 is it is set it moves. It's a story of movement. Yes, as well. And you know, you, you, it's, it's a chase narrative. It, well, it, it's it's got so much going for it. Um, I I think yes, there are these these, these faults that it's just a story that, that a lot of people would argue was cobbled together for a purpose. But by God, it's a sophisticated one. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, just listening to the way you describe it, then it is a prototype thriller. Mm. It's a very early, it's got much more in keeping with the thriller genre than it does uh, the detective genre. And maybe that's where people feel a bit uncomfortable around it. But I mean, mm. I, I, mm. I also think that it is uh, part of the fact that it is a manufactured story, it is manufactured for the purpose, mm. is um, 
is part of its its great strength. I mean, it, it always feels to me like it's a kind of best of in a weird kind of way, or a sort of season finale, um, as indeed it, it was in as an early serial form. But you know, you have you have a lot of this kind of world building that is reinforced. Again, you've got Watson talking about um, you know this, his marriage and how little he's seen of Holmes, and then you have. Um, you have the return of Mycroft, though we don't mm. realise it's Mycroft and un- until after. We have classic reprise of um, Sherlock Holmes is in disguise and Dr. Watson <laughs> doesn't realise who it is. Mm. You get this kind of, the only things that, the things that only ever happen in the last episodes of series, like Baker Street <laughs> is on fire. Um, so, you know, I, it, and then you have all these wonderful missing cases that sort of show that Holmes is certainly at the peak of his career, these missing cases in Scandinavia and, and France. Mm. So it's a story that where the stakes are, are, are so much higher and yet it doesn't conform to the pattern of the detective novel. And that's perhaps why people have been a little more, you know, perhaps why it gets uh, um, a bit of a mixed reaction. Although I think, you know, diehard Sherlock Holmes fans still have this as a, uh, as a, as a favorite, um, mm. you know, this is, this is not one anybody's going to dismiss from their top 10 easily, I don't think. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, if you want to read the show notes, you can find them at doingsofdoyle.com. And if you are enjoying the podcast, then please leave us a rating or review um, or consider sponsoring us on Patreon or on PayPal. You can find more details at the website. But what have we got on the podcast next time, Paul? Well, next time it's a complete change of mood um, where we, we, we're studying... The story, A Literary Mosaic, which is otherwise known as Cyprian Overbeck Wells, um, which gives us quite a few ideas about Conan Doyle's own reading. Yes, indeed. So that will be out at the end of next month. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Um, and and what Fleming does is he gives his organisations names. The first is 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 Russian run Smush Smiat Spionum Death to Spies, <laughs> uh, and then later he comes on with the um, the more the more famous um, organisation Spectre, which. Um... <laughs> <laughs> we rehearsed this and we still yes. don't remember the acronym. SPECTRE, which stands for the Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, and... Extortion. Um, sorry. The Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion. Can you do it again? Because um, your internet broke up. <laughs> sorry. Oh, okay, yes. Third time lucky. Which stands for the Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion. We can do it here! I'll buy you a delicatessen in stainless steel! Alright, keep your hair on. Put me down! Put me down! Oh, do you want to get off? <laughs> <laughs>